I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. Sugi, if you were going to reinvent a genre, which is our episode title today, what would it be? The Harper's Letter. (laughs) I didn't know, was that a genre? I guess... You know, that's the manifesto genre, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I, no, I'd like to try my hand at something else. Right. Um, I would like to write um, a rom-com. I have a plot worked out. It's secret, so I can't talk about it. What about you? I, I this is totally lame, but I always want to write a book of poetry because <laughs> I started off as a poet, so it doesn't really, does that count as a genre? I, if I wrote poetry, it would certainly be reinventing that genre. <laughs> You must have been a good poet. Um, I think, honestly, what I want to write is political satire. I grew up um, in in suburban Maryland and very much kind of reading a lot of political coverage in the Washington Post. And, you know, and I think a, a, a genre that would kind of a genre mashup that would overlap well there would be, you know, crime solving. I'd like to write a novel about a woman who solves crimes, a woman who solves political crimes. Um, this, I think, would bring everything together for me. So an autobiography? Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, today our Reinventing Genre episode is going to make all of your dreams come true, Sugi, because there are some big names who have done this, and they're going to talk to us about it. Uh, later in the show, we have Sarah Paretsky of V.I. Warshawski fame joining us to discuss her new story collection. And for, But first, we're thrilled to be joined by Christopher Buckley here to talk to us about his new political satire. And you're going to introduce him as soon as I mention that we have an intern working with us, Dylan who is referenced several times in the podcast, and so we have to say hello to Dylan as well. 
And uh, Dylan is the, the shadowy figure behind the curtain, who I think we you may hear more about this this uh, season, listeners. So we're delighted to welcome Christopher to the show. Christopher Buckley is a novelist, essayist, humorist, critic, magazine editor, and memoirist. His books have been translated into 16 foreign languages. He has worked as a merchant seaman and White House speechwriter. He has written for many newspapers and magazines, lectured in over 70 cities around the world, written 15 novels, including Supreme Courtship, Boomsday, No Way to Treat a First Lady, and The White House Mess. He was awarded the Thurber Prize for American Humor and the Washington Irving Medal for Literary Excellence. His most recent novel is Make Russia Great Again, a satire of the Trump administration. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, So this is your second time writing a novel that's a faux memoir from a former White House chief of staff. And we're so excited to talk to you about political satire in the age of Trump. The, The narrator of the book is Herbert K. Nutterman a former GM for some, he's got all the names in this book are so fantastic for some, he's, he's a former GM for some Trump properties, uh, who came out of retirement to serve Trump in the white house. And he's writing a retrospective tell all from a federal correctional institution, which is a fantastic premise. I wonder if you would start us off by reading a section from the book. Sure. The premise of the book is that, um, there's a computer in deep in the bowels of U.S. Cyber Command that has, um, that is designed to retaliate against any country that interferes in one of our elections. And it's autonomous, you know, in case the president, the chain of command has been interrupted or the president uh, can't be reached or whatever. After Russia interferes rather massively in our 2016 election, that it and 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 uh, the U.S. doesn't retaliate; it automatically, autonomously retaliates, and and uh, Vladimir Putin is defeated in a re-election and loses to the head of the uh, of the Russian Communist Party, and, and so Trump doesn't know about this, and his but his his aides do, and they're. They don't know what to do because if they, they if they tell him, uh, you know, he'll go absolutely ballistic because we know how much he he likes Mr. Trump, Mr. Putin. So anyway, this they're they're trying to figure out what to do, and this is Herb. I've since asked myself, should I have marched into the Oval Office and told Mr. Trump everything and thrown myself on his mercy? Before I answer my own question, a few points. One, mercy is not really Mr. Trump's thing, (laughs) nor is forgiveness. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh at my own stuff, but it's kind of funny. He demanded perfection, and why shouldn't he? It was this very quality that made him a giant in the hospitality world. Two, the I'm only the messenger here, defense doesn't work with Mr. Trump. In Trump world, the messenger was generally the first to die. Over the years, I'd seen many a messenger hurled into the alligator-filled moat at Farago sur Mer. That's the name of one of Mr. Trump's hotels. Three, as a result of the relentless attacks on him by the enemies of the people, the Democrat witch hunter, impeachers, 
the never Trumpers, the college educated portion of the electorate, the migrant huggers, curd lovers, the whole Trump detesting kitten caboodle. The poor president was by this point just plain worn out. Why trouble him with this? Putin was going to win the runoff election. The caravan would move on. His presidency had been a nonstop conveyor belt of unpleasantness. The chorus line of tramps clamoring for hush money, the devastating release of the tax returns, <laughs> prescient. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> Stop laughing at yourself. The Senate trial, the rumors about Vice President Pence trying to get the cabinet members to invoke the 25th Amendment, all of it. Mr. Trump's mental state was, I don't want to say precarious, fragile. This is not to say I agreed with Romy O'Reilly that he was a, quote, head case. But for me to go into the Oval, as we call the Oval Office, and say, oh, by the way, sir, seems one of our computers hacked the Russian election. And did I mention that the CIA put the number two communist on our payroll? What do you think Mr. Putin will make of them apples? Ready for your second double whopper with bacon? I might just put, it might just put Mr. Trump over the edge. Call me squeamish, but it is my firm belief that one should think twice before inducing a nervous breakdown in someone with a finger on the nuclear button. Finally, four. By now, I had come to the regretful conclusion that Mr. Putin probably did, in fact, have something on Mr. Trump. Why did I come to this conclusion? Call it intuition. Call it what you will. But as I assembled the various pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, it began to make sense. The heroic, if that's quite the right word, lengths, Mr. Trump had gone to in order to keep Putin happy. Calling his own intelligence people bozos for saying Russia interfered in 2016. Holding up military assistance to Ukraine. Poo-pooing the fact that Mr. Putin routine, routinely murdered journalists and dissidents, very often unpleasantly. And generally never missing an opportunity to say something positive about my beautiful friend, Vladimir. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I mean, I love that passage. Uh, and the, so many things that are happening when you're writing the book that are now happening again. And we're going to get to, you know, I mean, there's already this issue with uh, the the bounties that have been put on the heads of troops in uh, in Afghanistan that is, involves Russia. It seems directly parallel to stuff you're talking about. I'm almost I'm, I'm sort of glad I didn't come up with that. Right. <laughs> it would have been, it would have, it's so awful. I know it's so terrible, but it's right in the same groove that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, it 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 falls a little bit into the category. Of you can't make this stuff except up. except for in some cases you did, which is one of which is one of the challenges with, you know, writing uh, satire, I think, in the age of, of Trump. I mean, so your first novel, I mean, let's back up a little bit prior to the age of Trump. You know, your first novel, uh, uh, The White House Mess, is a story in which Ronald Reagan refuses to leave the White House. And in that book and in this book, we get this story of Russia and the election interference. And you're depicting a president who paints himself with a broad brush, you know, 
how can you talk about how you figured out to decided to, this plot in particular, and also how you decided to write from this point of view of a of a White House staffer uh, for the second time around? Because we're sort of talking about how to reinvent genres in this in this episode. Well, uh, you're 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 correct. My my first novel, I, I I'd worked at the White House. I was Mr. Bush's Bush forty one's uh, speechwriter when he was vice president. And I had read uh, a number of, I started reading White House memoirs then. And they're, they're really a fascinating subgenre. Everyone writes, everyone who, who works at the White House for more than five minutes writes a, a 500 uh, page <laughs> memoir. And they all, they, they all sort of, they, they tend to have the same two themes, these White House memoirs. One is, it wasn't my fault. Um, two, <laughs> <laughs> two it, w- it would have been much worse if I hadn't been there. And uh, so I, uh, uh, after two years of the White House, which, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's, an, it's a pretty interesting workplace. I, I, I wanted to do something, but I, you know, no one wants to read the memoirs of a vice presidential speechwriter. That, that'd be really boring. So I, you know, came, I had the, uh, had the notion to write a parody of a White House memoir, and uh, in it, uh, the uh, it starts with the new president. It came out in 1986. It's set in, in uh, it starts on January 20th, 1989, when, at which point, Mr. Reagan will be leaving office after his second term. And the, uh, the motor, so the motorcade uh, arrives at the White House to escort Mr. Mr. Reagan to uh, the Capitol, but he, he the word comes out that he doesn't want to leave. He's still in his pajamas. He's he's gone a little dotty. It's not malevolent. He's not clinging to the resolute desk. He just you know it's 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 kind of cloudy outside. He's he's a little tired. He just doesn't want to leave. So you know the the new president has this <laughs> really monstrous problem, and he's, he hasn't even been sworn in. That turned out to be a, that was the prologue of the book, and it turned out to be a racy premise uh, in, in 1986. It got the book a lot of attention. Anyway, I was interviewed uh, by the Washington Post, and I, I confessed to some anxiety that the Reagans, whom I had known since I was 13, because my, my, my dad was uh, close to them, uh, might not find this amusing, as, as at least as amusing as everyone else was finding it. And four days later, uh, a uh, uh, I get a, a letter uh, on White House, uh, white from the White House, franked, so no stamp, just the signature of Mr. Reagan. I thought, uh oh. And I opened it up, and it was a handwritten letter from uh, the President of the United States saying that he was delighted to have played a small part in in the success of 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 your novel. So you know when he. Um, uh, when in 1994 uh, he wrote his farewell letter to the American people, saying that, uh, as he put it, like millions of other Americans, I, I have, uh, I have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and um, you know I read that letter with uh, moist eyes, as did millions of America, other Americans. At the end of this book, now flash forward 34 years, and here's Buckley writing another faux or fake, as I guess Mr. Trump would call it, White House memoir, by a chief of staff also named Herb. 
uh, I'm bracing for a reviewer to say that in, in 34 years, Mr. Buckley has, Buckley's imagination has traveled the distance between A and B. But it's um, well. I'm assuming that was that parallel deliberate. Did you name them the same? Give them the same name purposely? Yeah, yeah. It was. It's 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 a bookend, and why not Herb? It's a funny name, and uh, uh, and he's a he's it's my a grandfather's nice... name. Interestingly well, enough, but go. he's dead, so you don't have to worry about him being offended. It'll be fine. He he never used the name because he thought it was funny himself. He was always called. He had a different name, but that was his actual name was Herb, and he didn't like it. it it's, it's, there's something about it. It's an inherently funny name. I agree. Uh, Herbert Hoover, almost, you say Herbert Hoover, and it, it almost sounds comic for no, no, for no particular good reason. Anyway, I, I'd written a couple of, uh, I, I gave up satire, political satire, about four or five years ago on the grounds that you know, American politics had become sufficiently self-satirizing. They didn't. It, they didn't. It didn't need me to come along and and, and poke fun at. And I so I wrote a a, a couple of historical novels, um, and and they did okay, but they didn't they didn't knock Hillary Mantle off the mantelpiece. And uh, people kept saying, "God, why aren't, why aren't you writing about this?" It's you know, and I, I said, "Well, I, I'm I don't." I'm not really sure I know how to write about it. Mr. As an object of satire, Mr. Trump is both a, to use, you know, the, 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 the expression, a low-hanging fruit uh, and a challenge. He's a challenge, I think, precisely because he's a, a low-hanging fruit. Um, the, the book got a, a rather nice review in the Washington Post earlier this week, and the, uh, the reviewer said it, uh, it's not so much that... He, Buckley's shooting fish in a barrel. He's like a, a fly gleefully circling a very large pile of manure. <laughs> so, I read this review, which we actually have had Ron on our show. Um, he's wonderful. Oh, well, he's he's my favorite person in the universe right now. I, I wrote him a thank you letter offering him my firstborn child, my secondborn <laughs> child. But I love the fly circling <laughs> pile of manure image. If I ever have a coat of arms, that's what I'm going to put on it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a- anyway, uh, so uh, I- I'd written a-, a two drafts of this book. And, uh, and they weren't, not only w- were they not very funny, uh, they weren't very good. Um, and I was about to give up, because it's rewriting a Novel is is kind of a drag. Oh, we know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you know about that? Fun, isn't it? Don't try this at home, kids. But my longtime editor, my beloved uh, Jonathan Carp, who's now CEO of Simon Schuster, uh, said, "Why don't you do it? Why don't you recast it as a as another White House mask?" And it was it was the scales fell from my eyes. The light bulb appeared over my head. uh, I felt the earth tremble. It was just sort of a, a, a liberating insight, and um, and and that draft was much uh, much more fun to write. There's something about the if you have a sympathetic narrator, 
uh, who's in over his head. He, Herb is a decent guy in a swamp of indecency. And he's trying to, you know, hold on to his dignity and his integrity, even though he, you know, he's, he, he knows exactly where he is. Um, you know, I, I once watched an interview with John Cleese, and he said that it was, he was talking about Faulty Towers, his brief limited series about a manic, crazy uh, hotel uh, owner. And he said it's more fun to show someone watching someone go crazy than just to show the person going crazy directly. And that's, uh, th that's the conceit here. Yeah, so I think that, I mean, one of the interesting things about this position is, right, I mean, this is a figure that I think I've been fascinated by in the Trump administration all along, the the circles of complicity that surround the president. And Herb sort of strikes me as part of this, like he's an insider, but he's also an outsider. He's trying to, um, as you, you, know, you put it, that dichotomy of the presidential memoirs, it's not my fault, it would have been so much worse if I weren't here. And Herb seems to fit into that really precisely. And then also um, Dylan made this observation and then I thought it was, it was really smart that sort of throughout the book, um, you know, you can see Herb sort of saying, well, I don't want to say this, but. Yeah, right. It's, it's a little bit, you know, classically uh, Mark Antony's funeral oration for Caesar. You know, I do not say that Caesar was ambitious. <laughs> anyway, uh, there I go, likening myself to Shakespeare. Uh, wow. No, just kidding. <laughs> so you were you were talking a little bit before about, you know, thinking that Trump presents a distinctive challenge to satire. And you know, one the early take on Trump or one early take on Trump was that he might single handedly ruin this whole genre. Um, because he's already such an exaggerated figure. But now there are all these imitators, um, Alec Baldwin, of course, um, Stephen Colbert, um, Anthony Atemanuk, and Sarah Cooper, who ZZ Packer just wrote about. Sarah Cooper has pioneered an entire new genre. I think it's really the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. I don't know how she does it. Uh, I mean, technically, you know, but I think she's the funniest satirist to come out of this. Although Stephen Colbert is relentlessly brilliant and, and Trevor Noah and uh, it's J.L. Colvin, I think is uh, these, you can see these new stars are being born <laughs> out of all this. Sarah Cooper's the one who does the TikTok videos where she lip syncs. Yeah. That's the thing is like all the other ones, Alec Baldwin dresses up like him, but this one, she's got no makeup. She's just herself doing the thing. There's something about that that makes it work. Y you know, and you get it within the, five seconds of seeing her the first time, you, you go, what is this? And then you start, you start howling. <clears throat> well, I mean, speaking of the idea of, of translating something at the moment that it's happening, that's kind of what you're doing with this book. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> you have in there these characters, you know, Vice President Mike Pants, Ivanka and Jored, former Press Secretary Beulah Puckle-Peters, um, and then there are those like the up and comer in, in Russian communist politics who are totally made up characters, you know, so you're trying to speak while history is happening, right? How do you decide who you're going to fictionalize and who you're not going to fictionalize uh, when putting together a book like this? Well, this, this, you know, this set out to be a, uh, a faux fake uh, memoir of the Trump White House. So, you know, the, the cast of characters uh, was sort of self-selecting, 
I, I dotted the last I and crossed the last T on, uh, I think it was like March 7th, just as the as COVID was starting. And the uh, I had had a line in there somewhere, this meme of, of, of Trump went more viral than the Spanish influenza of 1918. Oh my God, did you? Yeah, and the copy editor said, you sure? And so I, I, I took it out because, I, I mean, we didn't know on, on, on March 7th, we didn't know quite what was about to hit us. But, but it seemed just dicey enough to, yeah, no, let's, let's, no plague references. But there were a couple of accidentally prescient things in it. Uh, I started writing the book in last October. And it, for for the purposes of the plot for um for this this uh computer to interfere in the russian election there had to be a russian election uh and uh so i made up an election that had been designed to uh make it more convenient for mr putin to remain in office until 2036 and guess what happened last week? <laughs> That's right. The referendum. <laughs> you know? So I thought, yes. <laughs> One of the fascinating things about that is that if you are an, a dictator, which he is, and you are corrupt, which he is, uh, things really get dicey when you leave office because everyone, you know, is going to be out to get you. So what he's, uh, so the way to do that is to not leave office. And he has figured out uh, a way to do that, even as his popularity in Russia is plummeting. And uh, of course, when that happens, dictators become more dictatorial. And uh, just uh, just the other day, he uh, arrested uh, another journalist, and they now now routinely charge them with treason. When more and more people are charged with treason, you know it's a sign that uh, the guy at the top is nervous. These and these, of course, are all uh, laws that Mr. Trump would be very, ha very happy to uh, to have. Uh, you know, when after one particularly scorching Alec Baldwin portrayal of him on Saturday Night Live, he tweeted. He actually tweeted that this ought not to be allowed. So, you know, when the president of the United States is furious and proposing that the FCC make what you do illegal, you know you're batting a thousand. And, and the Trump in your book, I mean, the, the make Russia great again Trump of your book is is hungry for that kind of as as the real Trump is, you know, he sort of says, well, you you see how they do it over there. And so there's this interesting thing. I was just thinking about satire and forgiveness and consequences and, and Herb and Trump are not morally ambiguous people and they don't really evolve. But some of the more neutral or more moral characters in this story face extreme hardship, you know while villains are forgiven by their supporters and get off scot-free. And I want to 
um, put spoilers in here, so I'll leave it to you to kind of decide how far down that road you want to go. But throughout the story, people rarely seem to learn the lesson. And I was just thinking about, and the statement's been in the news again, because Susan Collins, for her impeachment vote, was sort of like, you know, I think Trump learned his lesson. And now there's a lot of headlines about, you know, vote her out. Trump clearly did not learn anything. And just how do you think about forgiveness and consequences in our current political scene and and, and in satire specifically? I think that uh, that that unfortunate statement by Susan is going to haunt her, you know, to the end of her days, just as uh, the silence of the Republican Senate, which I think more and more of as the silence of the lambs, is going to haunt them. Um, Herb is writing, the, the, uh, the author of, 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 of this uh, White House memoir, bear in mind, is writing it from prison from Federal Correction Institute, Wingdale, as it's, as it's called, where when he's not writing his memoirs, he's, he's teaching uh, napkin folding classes <laughs> in the vocational training. He used to be the food and beverage manager at, at, uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, we, we, we mustn't give away the end, but uh, I leave ambiguous uh, why Herb is writing this from jail but you 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 can uh deduce from the length from the severity of his sentence that um that it's uh, it was something uh, that made the prosecutor want to uh, throw the book at him and it's i i i with brushstrokes suggest that this is because he has protected mr trump and he is still, he's, you know, seven years later, however long it is, he's still hopeful of, a, uh, of the pardon <laughs> that, that is continually. Trump does this. He's, he's, he's really, um, his cruelty is, um, seems limitless. He's forever, you see, he does it publicly. He's forever dangling the prospect of a pardon. Uh, you know, for Manafort, for Stone, and yeah, I mean, sometimes, uh, unfortunately, in in life, sometimes the uh, evil goes unpunished. We, you know, we know this, and uh, so I, I didn't, I didn't want it to be too pat in the sense that you know, everyone of virtue is rewarded, and everyone who does evil is punished. It's uh, life is usually a little less rigorously templated. Uh, than that. The rule of fiction generally is that your characters have to change. Uh, you know, a, a character shouldn't be at the end of the story the same person he or she was at the beginning. But that's the complication with somebody like Trump because he's not going to change, right? No, no, he doesn't. And the book that also is being published this Monday by Simon and Schuster. Uh, by Mary Trump, uh, I believe, makes that point that he does not change. He has not changed by his own admission. I think he's somewhere. Uh, there's a tape of Trump saying, "You know, I'm I'm the same person I was when I was one." Uh, who would boast <laughs> of such a thing? And I gather in uh, 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 Miss Trump's forthcoming book, we uh, we will learn that uh, much of the call it blame for that, uh, uh, came from the tyrannical father figure. There's a poem by uh, Philip Larkin 
titled This Be the Verse, and it's one of my favorite poems. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. <laughs> Look for that poem to be uh, quoted in the, uh, in the weeks ahead as we read reviews of, of Miss Trump's book. The interesting thing that uh, I thought that, that the realization that came to me while I was reading your book is that actually the scenes that which, in which Trump appears where he's interfacing with Herb and he's trying to get Herb to do something or he's manipulating Herb in some way, they were realist scenes to me. And I thought maybe the, the answer here is not that, oh, Trump can't be satirized because he is himself a satire. The, maybe the answer is the only way to write about psychological realism about Trump is to do it in satire. I wonder what you thought about that. Well, it's an interesting thought. Um, Kurt Anderson, uh, 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 you know, the co-founder of Spy Magazine, the brilliant Spy Magazine with uh, Graydon Carter, has called Mr. Trump the greatest self-paradist in, U- in U.S. history. And I think there's, there's something to do that. There's something also majestically unknowing about that. But you, you know that Trump doesn't realize this about himself. Put it this way, he, he certainly shares traits with uh, some of the m- people in history who have been uh, called malignant narcissists. Did you know that Trump has written, has written I better put quote marks around it, uh, 18 books? I did not know. This is my 19th book. At least I'm one book ahead of the bastard. But he's, he's uh, uh, 20, uh, some uh, 18 books have appeared under the Trump uh, uh, name. Tony Schwartz was his first ghostwriter. And there was a chilling, uh, he did a chilling interview on, uh, with I think Ari Lieber on, on MSNBC. Tony Schwartz, he's since come back from the dark side, Tony. Uh, I, I used to know him. He, he made a nice bundle off that book. But he said, he was saying, you, you, no, you have to understand something. Trump doesn't care about the deaths, the COVID deaths. He said he absolutely, he couldn't care less. A million, two million, three million doesn't matter to him. He cares only about one thing, dominance. And I thought that was a, um, uh, I thought that was a chilling insight. And it it rang absolutely true. I mean, look at, you know, I don't take responsibility for it at all, is in his own uh, words. Uh, I mean, look at this situation we're in, a raging pandemic killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. And and he's, his reaction is, oh, you know, look what they're saying about me. He's, he's, he's the perfect solipsist. If you, if you want to design, if you went into Dr. Frankenstein's library and said, okay, we're going to make the monster a solipsist, you know, he would, he would, he would, he would look like our commander in chief. That seems like a great place for us to uh, say thank you uh, for writing the book and for joining us. Well, thank you. And thank you, Dylan, young man. I'm, I'm expecting greatness from you. Um, And we'll remind our listeners to go pick up a copy of Make Russia Great Again, a fantastic, hilarious book with a red hat on the cover.
Up next, we'd like to welcome Sarah Paretsky. Hailed by P.D. James as, quote, the most remarkable of modern crime writers, Sarah Paretsky is the New York Times bestselling author of 22 novels, including the renowned V.I. Warshawski series. She is one of only four living writers to have received both the Grand Master Award from the Mystery Writers of America and the Cartier Diamond Dagger from the Crime Writers Association of Great Britain. She lives in Chicago. Sarah, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks, Sugi. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We feel lucky to be hosting, if only distantly, uh, literary royalty. In 2013, I was trying to write a novel about a female lieutenant who was fighting in Iraq And there are libraries full of male protagonists of war novels, as I'm sure you know, and vanishingly few female protagonists. And I was trying to think of someone else who'd written about a character like this or in coming into a situation where they were writing, where they were trying to write about a character in in such a male-dominated field. And I went back and read your first V.I. Warshawski novel, Indemnity Only. And it was just an incredible experience for me. It was really helpful and... um, you know, it, it just was, it's a brilliant, brilliant, and all the books since. Thank you very much. I hope it was a help and that you got your own voice out there. It totally was. It totally was. It gave me a t- tremendous number of ideas. So there's a great passage about this in your introduction to the 30th anniversary edition of Indemnity Only, and I wonder if we could start off with you reading from it for us. Sure. I can still remember the October day when V.I. Warshawski first appeared in my life. I was in a meeting with my boss, whose office overlooked Grant Park. Fred, as I call him, had a gift for endless repetitions of the obvious. He also had a nasty streak and didn't take challenges to his ideas at all easily. As my lips murmured agreement, the balloon over my head said something unprintable. My attention wandered to the park thirty-six stories below. The dead trees, the gray day, seemed as dreary as my own mood. And it was at that moment that V.I. came to me. I had been reading crime fiction since I'd been a teenager. The first novels I read were by Rex Stout, who grew up in the 1880s in the same part of eastern Kansas that I came from. In high school, when we were asked to write fiction for our English classes, I always wrote detective stories. I read a lot of Marjorie Allingham and Guy Marsh and Nicholas Blake, was briefly in love with Peter Whimsey, but it wasn't until I was in my early twenties that I first encountered American noir. Like most readers, I fell under the spell of Chandler and the two MacDonalds at once. After moving through the seven Philip Marlowe novels in short order, I read all the Travis McGee and Lou Archer I could find, discovered Cornell Woolrich, and was hooked on noir. At the same time, the more I read, the more uncomfortable the women characters made me feel. More specifically, I was uncomfortable with the way women's sexuality dictated their ability to act or to have good moral judgment. In six of Chandler's seven novels, a sexually active woman, one who tries to seduce Marlowe, turns out to be the main villain. Marlowe is like an uncorrupted version of Adam and Eden, Eve, in the guise of the Big Sleep's Carmen Sternwood or the Little Sisters or Famey Quest, tries to get him to eat that apple. Unlike Adam, though, Marlowe is too tough for these wily women. The virginal women in noir fiction are, vic- are virtuous by definition, but they can't look after themselves, and they have terrible judgment. Effie Perrine, Sam Spade's secretary in the Maltese Falcon, 
is the original good girl of noir. Sam never calls her Effie. She is always angel. In contrast to Bridget's sultry sensuality, Effie's eyes were brown and playful in a shiny, boyish face. The fact that she is boyish in her looks means that she is not a sexual and therefore predatory female. Sam can trust her, but her childishness also makes her naive. At the end of the Maltese Falcon, the angel cannot accept the fact that Sam sent Bridget over. Women work on intuition, as Sam tells her off and on throughout the novel, but a man has to deal in justice. Effie and Carmen Sternwood and all the rest of them made me want to create a woman private eye, one who would turn the tables on all these distorted versions of women's lives. The P.I. I imagined would have a sex life, and her sexuality would have nothing to do with whether she was a moral person. Sex would not stop her from being able to solve problems. Thank you very much. Um, I love that introduction. And one of the things that I really like about that book and V.I. in general as a character, and that helped me with my book too, is that idea that she could have a sex life. She has an affair with Ralph Devereaux in that first, uh, in that first novel. That's not... In, it doesn't. It's not. It's not part of how she's doing her job, right? It's not overdetermined. It's not made too much of a big deal of. It is a thing that happens. It's part of her life, right? But it doesn't become this mythic thing as it does in in the like old noir stories. Ralph refuses to think that Vi knows what she's talking about, and he gets shot. I can't remember if it's the left shoulder or the right shoulder. But he comes back in, in a later book, uh, and he gets shot in the other shoulder because he still <laughs> doesn't listen to her. And I think if he comes back one more time, it's probably the bullet's going to hit him right here, and it'll be all over for poor <laughs> Ralph. So I'm holding off on bringing him back. I think I read somewhere that you were going to kill him and that your husband talked you out of it because he kind of liked Ralph, but you were so frustrated with him that you were going to off him at the end of the book. Actually, it wasn't Ralph. It was Mr. Contreras, V.I.'s extremely garrulous downstairs neighbor. I just got so tired of him going on and on and on that in the sixth book, I shot him and Courtney, my husband, flung himself between the bullet and Mr. Contreras and deflected it into his knee. (laughs) I mean, this is one of the most interesting things about um, V.I. Warshawski for me is to watch how the character has grown and changed and continued to evolve over this really long duration. Um, You say that you wrote the stories in uh, your new collection, Love and Other Crimes, over a period of 20 years. And it's one thing to create a character that breaks the mold and then to keep her with you. Um, and to keep looking at her from different angles and putting her in different situations and keeping her fresh to keep reinventing her over time is amazing. I'm really curious to hear you talk about how that has been for you over the years. Sometimes it's a, a challenge. And there were a couple of times when I left VI and, and wrote a book that wasn't in the series and in fact wasn't really strictly speaking a mystery at all. And that helped me come back to her and see her with a fresh eye and also made me realize how important she is to me emotionally as a character. One of the short stories in Love and Other Crimes, Acid Test, has as its protagonist a young woman who's a forensic engineer, which I think would be a great occupation for a, a, an amateur sleuth or not a professional 
detective anyway, law enforcement officer. And I thought, oh, if I had another series, you know, then I could keep back and forth and keep VI fresh. And, you know, I enjoyed writing about Temple in Acid Test, and I loved the dynamic between her and her hippie mother who went to India when everybody in America was doing that and joining ashrams and becoming very spiritual. Um, I always had thought, what about my generation? I never had children of my own, but what would my daughter or daughters of my friends, how would they react to their radical mothers or semi-radical mothers? And so Temple was sort of my my version of that. But she didn't come to life for me emotionally the way that VI did. And so the challenge as I see it is while I want VI at the center of my writing life, or while she, as long as she continues to feel like the appropriate center of my writing life, how do I keep her fresh? And some of that is that the stories are very much in response to the events of the moment. And so the freshness comes from the context rather than from the interior life of the character. Yeah. That's that's so fascinating because we um I was thinking actually of Warshawski when um or I was thinking of we a couple of episodes ago we had Curtis Sittenfeld, whose most recent novel is Rodham, um, about if Hillary Rodham had not married Bill Clinton on and she had made a comment about how rare it is to read a book from the point of view of an intelligent and successful professional woman. And I actually was thinking about that as I was reading this book. Um the way that and then there also in that book, um, the context keeps changing. And so we keep seeing how different, how other characters actually react to this really strong woman. It just reminded me of that in that the, the intelligence is so unapologetic and um, often revealing of the characters around her in a way that, I mean, it makes sense what you're saying about how um, the setting would be the way to keep her fresh. One of the things that I remember from that very first scene in Indemnity Only is where it's that great scene where the, the, the lights are out. And so she's having to interview this guy and she can't really see his face. And he says, you have to go right away and do this job for me. And she's like, no, no, I'm going to do it later. <laughs> and he's like, why not? And she's like, I have things to do. You know, I just felt like even then, like a, a, a professional female saying like, I'm not doing this for you right now. I've got other stuff to do was is a way political you know i thought that was really a great moment that i always remember from that scene and also so much i was working i spent uh, well well over 10 years close to 20 years in the corporate world but the last 10 years working for a, a very large company indeed and you know it is really very much like the army i don't know if either of you has ever been part of a large corporation but they talk about the chain of command and you must not back talk to your superior officer and and VI was very much always my version of thumbing my nose at all of that. No, I'm not doing it now. I'm doing it when I feel like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to talk about place. Uh, this is a very Midwestern collection. The VI stories are set in Chicago, of course. But I was also thrilled to see a story like Miss Bianca, which is set at Kansas University, which is I'm in Kansas City. So that's just up the road for me. And my dad went there. And you went there. Uh, when people think of detective fiction, they think of L.A. or New York a lot. So how come you ended up writing a lot about the Midwest? That's my home. I grew up in Kansas. I was born in Iowa, and I've lived in Chicago my entire adult life. 
when I when my agent I shouldn't say when I was selling my first book when my agent it took him a year to find a publisher and we were lucky because that was back when there were still quite a few independent publishers unlike today when there are like five conglomerates controlling the state of the printed word but one of the rejection letters I got said there is not enough interest or there are not enough people who read in the Midwest to make it profitable to publish a book set in Chicago and um, it is just such a New York attitude. I had, I'm so petty and I operate often with a chip on my shoulder. So I was at a dinner party. Oh, I long for those dinner parties with some very New York New Yorkers. You know, they're very sophisticated, but they're also very provincial. And uh, one of them turned to me. It was my agent and his wife and my editor and her husband and a couple of other people I don't remember. And uh, one of them turned to me and th they said, isn't New York wonderful? Aren't you happy to be here? And I just couldn't resist. I said, it is. I forget because I think of it as flyover country between Chicago and Paris. And they were like, but New York is like this. New York is like this. And I thought, yes, that was my revenge for that um, editorial rejection all those years earlier. Uh, we love that. We're a very Midwestern podcast, and Sugi's in Minneapolis, so we know oh, okay. We know what you're talking about. It's Yeah, it's funny. I do feel like this is a recurring thread on this podcast that we're, we're a little bit like, we should get a flag that we wave. Um, <laughs> there should be a Midwestern solidarity flag. Yes. Right. I just want to talk about where you grew up in Kansas real quick before we move away from Kansas, because I'd like to stay on Kansas for just a little while longer. I grew up outside Lawrence. So my dad was, I think, the second Jew hired for a tenure track position at the University of Kansas. And it was, um, you know, it was an experiment to see whether Jews could really fit in. Um, and in those days, the... I don't know if they were written real estate covenants the way they were in Chicago, but there were unwritten covenants that specified where people of color and where Jews could live, and that was in the mud flats along the Kansas River. And um, so my parents bought a house in the country, and I grew up, that was how I ended up going to a two-room country school, a very formative experience because my brothers and I were incredibly clumsy, not good athletes, but there were, everyone had to play on the sports team so that we had enough people to field the team. And so I got to play second base or third, I think it was, on the Caw Valley District 95 baseball team, one of the highlights of my life. So Miss Bianca is set at KU, and, and it seems like the you, you had an, an afternote for the story. This is a story about a young girl who's tending mice in a, in a lab and, and, and gets involved in a mystery. So... You, you say, in essence, that like you're sort of in the background of that story or you're one of the children of the of the scientist who's the one of the main characters of the story. Is that is that accurate? Could you just talk about that a little bit and that origin of that story? Yes. My dad worked on an organism. He was a cell biologist and worked on an organism that causes typhus and was which was the second biggest killer on the Eastern Front in the Second World War behind actual gunfire and slaughter. And so the Soviets were trying to make it as a biological weapon, one of the variants of it. 
and my dad wanted to see what they were working on, and I'm sure the Department of Defense was curious too, I don't know that part of it. But he was not allowed to travel behind the Iron Curtain. There was, in Washington, they wouldn't let him go because my father's family had come from Eastern Europe and some of them were communists and they were sure that he was going to sell U.S. Um, biological secrets to the Russians. The Russians wouldn't let him come because my mother's brothers were all career army men and the Russians were sure that he just wanted to steal secrets from them for the U.S. Army. Anyway, he suddenly had a chance to go to Czechoslovakia for a conference and nobody could stop him from going there. And he persuaded one of the Czech lab technicians to inject him with their version, the Soviet biological warfare labs were in Czechoslovakia and he persuaded them to inject him with their version of this organism so that he could take it home with him and culture it. And he flew home, he landed in Kansas City with a fever of 104, but he wouldn't start antibiotics until his lab tech came and took a blood sample so that he could culture the Soviet version of, of Rickettsia, his organism. I want to say that no one on the plane was at risk. It's carried by tick bites, so unless the plane was filled with ticks, people around him were safe. It wasn't like traveling with COVID. But um, I still, when I think about it, and I don't know why I never asked him about it, but why did he do it? I don't know if he, if he was crazy or brilliant or some of both. I mean, he often seemed crazy, so I go with crazy, but, um, but the, the story, I love that story. I love the voice, the little girl, Abigail, she's looking after the mice because her mother's a single mom and she has to go up and be with her mother, who's the scientist's secretary. She has to stay there after school and and so the lab puts her in charge of feeding the mice just to give her something to do and make her feel she's on the team. And I just, I loved her viewpoint and everything about it. And then I turned it into a novel called Fallout. And it just didn't, the charm of it, that I felt there was a lot of charm to the girl and the mouse and that relationship. I just couldn't translate it into a full-length novel. So the novel has many strengths, but it, it still disappoints me. Hmm. That's it. It's interesting to hear you talk about, I feel like this is a question my students ask me all the time, and sometimes I'm not even quite sure of the alchemy of how a story successfully turns into a novel or fails. Um, and sometimes, yeah, there is that, that sort of quality of um, like a certain live quality that you can't get from one form to the other. But, you know, V.I. Warshawski um, also has deep family ties in Chicago. Um, and in this collection, her ex-husband is a character. And so is Murray Ryerson, who's a reporter, who she's known for a long time. And when she meets with the police captain, Bobby Mallory, who's a friend of her father, she says, quote, My Jewish mother was godmother to Bobby's eldest Catholic daughter. There's her bartender friend, Sal. Her world is kind of like Winesburg, Ohio, more than the kind of isolated loner private eyes like Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade. She's got this really populated world, this deep community. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think that 
the first time I read Chandler, as I said, rereading the introduction to Indemnity Only, I was struck by the sexual politics, the way that the women characters were portrayed. But the second time I read his books, the loneliness really hit me. It just cuts into you in a way that I think really everybody who's experiencing quarantine, home alone, or even home with someone else that they wish they could have a little separation from, um, feels is feeling these days. That that loneliness is so palpable, and um, I didn't think it through consciously. It's just that I couldn't stand to live that way, and so Vi's community grew up around her. I think if I'd had confidence in my writing voice from the beginning, which I didn't. I would have given V.I. her family. I wouldn't have made her an orphan. I might have made her an only child because I had four brothers. And It's nice to be an only child if you have a lot of siblings. You think, oh, you get all of that attention and you don't have to share the last piece of lemon pie with anyone. But uh, I wouldn't have left her without living family the way that that she is. It's just I I was following the conventions of the form and they, they are all loners. And then her her milieu grew up around her because loner is not how I like to live. V.I. herself uh, is aware of these private eye tropes and the way that she's reinventing them. You know, she's self she's conscious she's read the same books that, that you have or I have. Um, and she pushes back against those tropes or plays with them in the stories themselves and in the novels. Um, a good example from this collection that we're talking about today is, is the story Flashpoint, which opens with her sort of quoting Marlowe and joking around with, with and re, you know, turning a quote up from Marlowe on its head, and then turns on a scene where V.I. scolds a kid at a high school gathering that she's speaking to because she feels like he's invoking that male private eye identity that she rejects. I wondered if you could read to us uh, that passage from that story. V.I. makes a sort of a smart remark, the turning Philip Marlowe on his head in a way, in a high school career day where she's speaking to a room full of kids. And then she realizes later that she got the whole scenario completely wrong. And most of the story is her playing catch-up and trying to make make good what she did wrong. But early in the story, she's talking to the kid's father. The kid has disappeared. Have you talked to the police? V.I. asks. Absolutely not. If I wanted to go to the police, I wouldn't be coming to you. I sat back in my chair. Mr. Teichel, your son asked an, an absurd and on the surface insulting question in front of the school. There's a myth about the world of private eyes, that they're hard-bitten, lonely men who have sex with glamorous and dangerous women. When Corey asked if I ever slept with a suspect, I thought he was trying to draw a laugh from his classmates by playing into that myth. He obviously had something else on his mind. You're his father. You tell me what that was. Teichel breathed hard through his nose, a kind of bull-in-the-ring sound. Corey's 17. That's not an age where someone confides in his father. Who would he confide in? His mother? The bullring snort grew more pronounced. Friends, I finally asked when it was clear that mother wasn't going to be talked about. He's a loner. I don't think he has friends. Erica Lehart? 
That lying little bitch, he shouted. Are you a friend of hers or that mother of hers? Well, let's see where we are so far, Mr. Teichel. You say your son is missing. You claim I'm responsible. You won't go to the police. You won't discuss his mother. You don't know who his friends are. Is Corey really missing? Teichel's lips were pressed in a thin, angry line. He is really missing. Now tell me how you know the Lehart females. I shook my head. People tell me you're a software designer. Gaming software, right? So she is trying... I can't believe you can write code if you work on untested assumptions. I won't talk about the Lehart women because you're not asking a rational question about them. And unless you want to hire me to find your son and to answer some questions yourself, there's no reason for us to continue speaking. I pulled out my phone and started returning emails, or at least pretended to. Teichel walked to the door, hesitated, walked back again. Very well. I wish to hire you to find Corey, but only if you are not playing some game with those Lehart feet with the Leyharts. He was still making tiresome assumptions, but I let it pass. I met Erica Lehart briefly once and don't know her mother. When Ms. Lehart told me she was worried about your son, I told her to talk to you, but she said she couldn't. His nostrils flared again, cornered bull. Damned right. Not since the day I found her snooping in my home computer. I raised my brows. Her mother works for Metargon. They are notorious thieves of other people's work. Erica claimed she was looking for a document that Corey had created. She had come over on the pretext of a study date with my son. That was the last time she was allowed in our home. How did Corey feel about you banning her from the home? He didn't say anything about it. He probably realized she was using him, but it didn't seem to bother him. Maybe it did him terrible damage for you to exclude his friend, I suggested. She seems to like him. She came all the way down here on the bus to ask me to find him. That didn't set well with Tygel, but he wasn't stupid, only angry and confused. After railing at me for a moment, he stopped and thought, I suppose. After all, it's her mother who wants my files. Bernice Lehart could have been exploiting her daughter's interest in Corey. I asked what proof he had that Bernice Lehart was trying to steal his designs. The work I do is on the edge where AI meets traditional gaming. Defense industries are among my clients, and anything you do for defense arouses interest around the globe. Metargon is a player. Anyone who works for Metargon... In other words, more assumptions but no proof. Do you think your son's disappearance is connected to your work? He suddenly became very still as if his entire mind had retreated to a remote place. When he spoke again, it was without bluster. I hope not. But if it is, the faster you find him, the better. And without police, FBI, none of them, because they will care more for the software than for Corey. Uh, thank you so much. One of the things that I like to do is have Things that appear in one story, even if it's not a VI story, appear in all of the stories. So Met Argonne is a big player in the book Critical Mass. In my novel Fire Sale, the, there's a big box retailer called Buy Smart. And 
they, um, that is the big box retailer that then is in everything I write that calls for a Walmart or a Costco or an Amazon warehouse. It's always buy smart. That's awesome. How do you track all of those things? Do you have a master document or someone who does it for you? Or? No, I keep track of it in my mind and not very skillfully. So my Japanese translator keeps meticulous records and every now and then she writes and says, you know, Lottie's clinic moved and I don't remember seeing when you moved and it's like, oh dear. That's because I wasn't keeping track. Um, yeah, it's I, I'm always interested in how people organize themselves because I feel like I'm I don't know. I mean, I, I'm really at, I hope the beginning of a career that lasted, I mean, created to create a universe like that is so amazing. And to try to think about what sort of system one would want to have for that. I think writ, handwritten paper would be better than computer because you forget what you've put in a computer file. If I was going to do it and I'm too far down the road and maybe too impatient to go back to it, but I work with big right, uh, artists sketch pads as I'm mapping out storylines and that's where I would put those details. I'd create a picture of the world. I mean I would draw a picture, a big picture of the world and then there would be all the people who inhabit that world and the where they live and what their names are and who their children are. That's awesome. I think I'm working too small. Um, <laughs> I think it's uh also important to make clear that in this collection, you aren't writing just from VI's point of view. There are a number of stories like Miss Bianca, which you talked about earlier, where someone else is the protagonist. And there are also stories where you, in essence, reinvent great detectives of the past. And I'm thinking particularly of Murder at the Century of Progress and The Curious Affair of the Italian Art Dealer. Could you talk about that part of the project? Yes. I write to entertain myself as much as anything else. The Sherlock Holmes story, that's where I'm a woman on a mission because there was a crime writer named Anna Catherine Green who nobody knows her name today, but she was the list leader of the 1870s, 80s, 90s, both in England and America. And she started a decade before Conan Doyle created Sherlock Holmes. She had an investigative detective, and she had a woman who was essentially an amateur sleuth who employed many of the methods that, I'm not saying Holmes copied from her, his oeuvre has been well documented, the influences on it, but he was very aware, Conan Doyle was very aware of her, he was jealous of her financial success, and he wrote her wanting, when he came to the States, he wrote her wanting to meet her to get kind of marketing secrets from her. Now her response to him hasn't survived. It's his letter to her that survives. So I just wanted to bring Amelia Butterworth, her woman amateur sleuth, back to life and have her one-up Sherlock Holmes. And I just had so much fun doing that. As much fun as you had writing it, I think it's a hugely fun collection to read also. So a couple episodes ago, we were talking with the author Jabari Asim about the need to rethink police procedural narratives in the wake of Black Lives Matter. And VI has connections to the police. Her father was a police officer. So she comes from that history. But in her college years, she also participates in the Freedom, Ri in the Freedom Rides and supports Martin Luther King. 
Um, I suppose this is all also appearing in your giant um, artist notebook. I'm very curious. And of course, private investigators are different than the police. There's the, an important distinction there. Nevertheless, there's this current discussion over law enforcement and police brutality. I'm curious about if that's affected how you think about VI specifically or just private eyes generally. I think it's important to rethink all of these relationships one of the things that I remember about Philip Marlowe is, is that his closest friend is with the police. The police are his antagonists and they're also his friends. And so this police officer, can't remember his name, comes over and plays chess with him and, and they have that bond. There has to be a way for a private investigator to get access to um, ongoing investigations so that she knows where the police are with something. It's also they're operating in the same kind of murky intersection of street and justice. And so I don't see ever creating a kind of story where there's complete hostility or no talking between police and private eye. At the same time, I had to start thinking about this very seriously about two decades ago when I became aware of the torture ring that the Chicago police were operating and operating with impunity on the south side of Chicago. And for those who don't know Chicago, the south side is essentially black. Chicago is the most segregated city in America in a particular way, not just racially, but economically. And the only reason that I learned about this torture in advance of the world at large was that I had a friend who was the deputy chief medical examiner for Cook County, and he started seeing unmistakable signs on the bodies of victims of torture, where electrodes had been attached to them, where they had been uh, receiving third-degree burns. And, uh, and so I became aware of this and started being part of groups that were speaking out against this. I followed the case carefully, closely, as an intrepid reporter named John Conroy kept trying to force the city to step in. Chicago, over the course of the decades paid about $100 million in legal fees to defend the officers involved. They never fired them and they never held them accountable. Um, I ended up writing a novel published in 2009 in the VI series called Hardball, which is based on that, that torture. And I don't believe that that, that police station was shut down, but I don't believe that the behavior has necessarily disappeared. And in Hardball, V.I.'s father was a, a patrolman. He wasn't ever a detective or a, a homicide investigator or anything like that. He was an easygoing guy who liked being on the streets. But V.I. is forced to see that this father, whom she loved dearly, he wasn't 
a perpetrator, but he was a bystander who didn't speak up and protest this. And I didn't want that to be the story of her father. I wanted him to be the knight in shining armor, but I couldn't do it and be true to the kinds of decisions that people made. You know, one officer who tried to speak out against this, um, he ended up dying of a heart attack, but he was so persecuted by his fellow officers. He was sent into um, gang warfare zones without backup. He was... Um, he would call for support in dangerous situations and his calls would never be responded. He had all the harassment that, and this was a white officer, he had all the harassment that anyone who's a woman or a person of color has experienced in trying to break a job barrier with rats in the locker and all those other even more horrible things. So the stress killed him, and V.I.'s father makes the decision that he has a wife and a child and he isn't going to court that kind of ostracism. And um, it was a really hard book to write, and there were scenes in it that were really painful. I um, took part in, a, in writing a book called Anatomy of Innocence, which was a, a woman named Laura Caldwell, um, she died a couple of months ago of breast cancer, terrible loss, terrible loss. But she was a lawyer who ran a Life After Innocence project at Loyola University in Chicago. So she didn't try to prove innocence of someone who had been wrongfully convicted, but she tried to help bring people, integrate them back into the world if they were released if they'd been found innocent and were released. And she asked a bunch of us, Lee Child, S.J. Roseanne, and a bunch of other writers, to each of us to write a particular episode, treating it from arrest to, and so on. And each chapter was about a different exoneree. And I was assigned the chapter about torture and met with a guy named Dave Bates. We spent a day together. He honored me with his confidence, but he was weeping with the shame of what, how he had responded to being tortured. And that's as close as I've come to it. And I found it unbearable, and I don't know how someone who actually survived it, who has to bear it every day, deals with it. So how to incorporate that, how to integrate that into writing private eye fiction is a challenge, because you don't want to write a polemic. You want to write a novel. You're writing to entertain people, and yet at the same time, crime fiction is where law, justice, and society come together in a way that you can write about these issues. So I think in some ways, as a writer of crime fiction, whether it's noir or police procedurals or amateur sleuths, you 
you can take that challenge and create entertainment that educates. And in some ways, I think that um, Black Lives Matter, this, this movement, brings it all to the forefront of our, our minds and makes all of us aware that, that we have an opportunity as well as maybe an obligation to address these issues. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Oh, thank you for your interest and for paying such careful attention to my work. I'm, it means a lot to me. Thanks. Thanks so much. And we will remind our listeners to go out and pick up Love and Other Crimes. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. I wanted to end this episode by remembering the late Brad Watson, who taught at the University of Wyoming and was the author of four books, including the National Book Award finalist, The Heaven of Mercury, and the Penn Faulkner-nominated Aliens in the Prime of Their Lives. Brad was a brilliant writer. When I was an undergraduate, he was a reader for my thesis, an early draft of my first novel, Love Marriage. I've never forgotten his kindness, generosity, and encouragement, and was so sorry to hear of his passing. We're thinking of his friends, family, and community, and sending them deepest condolences today. Thanks to those who work on our show. Our producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Thanks to Dylan Miettinen of the University of Minnesota for being this summer's intern producer. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned today. That's all, folks. Until next time, take care. Read up and mask up.